Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Laughlin. I'm not. I'm Justin Grant. Hey, good joke. That's because I don't have that in there. And today we're sitting down with TJ Tate, who has a super interesting career pathway, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. This is a really entertaining episode because she's got some really fun stories to share. I do want to make a note that we lost her at the end of this call. She, uh, Her internet went out on her and we lost her at the very end. But she did send me some messages that she wanted to sign off with before we finished recording. So I'll, I'm going to be reading those at the end in our outro. So make sure that you listen all the way to the end of the episode to make sure that you get everything that she wanted to say. So before we get into the episode, I want to remind everyone, as I always do, to subscribe to Aquademia wherever you listen to podcasts so you can get every new episode directly downloaded onto your device as soon as it's available. Yeah, make sure to check us out on Twitter at AquademiaPod. And if you want to contact us, there's two ways you can do that. Send us an email, podcast at globalseafood.org, or visit globalseafood.org. Go to the top of that homepage, you'll see the Aquademia Podcast button. Go ahead and click that and you'll see our fillable form right there on that page. And if you like the show, please take a couple minutes to rate and review Aquademia on whichever podcast platform you use, especially Apple Podcasts, because that really helps us get on some charts and get the show in front of more potential listeners to grow this community. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode with TJ Tate, and we will talk to you at the end. Welcome to the Aquademia Podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. So we're sitting down today with TJ Tate, seafood consultant extraordinaire who has, uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, have heard her name before or, or actually know her personally. When I brought up that we were doing a Career Pathways episode in the office, um, a bunch of our, our co-workers were like, oh, I, yeah, I know her. I've done work with her before. So uh, we're pretty excited to have you on. How's it going, TJ? Great. I'm sure all the comments that your colleagues made were all nice, correct? Positive well, memories these people have. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, you know, you, you've had a pretty cool, uh, interesting career pathway that took you to where you are now and um, been working at some pretty pretty awesome places that we're all familiar with. And uh, But I, I'm not here to tell that story. You are. So, first of all, <laughs> figure out where you want to start and then tell us your story. Tell us who you are. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Justin. Hopefully, I can be as entertaining as some of your some of your other guests have been. And I do have to say, so I'm TJ Tate. Um, I'll go with your intro of seafood consultant extraordinaire and extreme entrepreneur, uh, seafood advocate. Those are kind of the words that jumble around in my head when I'm telling people who I am and what I do, which usually doesn't mean a lot to everybody, but in this industry it does. Um, And I have to say, I was listening to some of your podcasts because it was Brian Perkins who actually made a recommendation that I join you guys. So thank him for that. Of course. And so I was listening to his podcast and, you know, his wife's comment that his path was not a pathway. It was more meandering. I'm like, oh my God, he's so spot on. This is why Brian and I get along so well. I'm like, mine was definitely not a path. It's more of a stumble. So I (laughs) stumbled from, from job to job and career to career to finally get to, I guess, if you want to call it the path that I'm on right now. Well, like Um, I said, a lot of our listeners are in the seafood industry and I'm sure they can relate. (laughs) I'm sure they can, because I've, I've jumbled along and stumbled along with many of them for many years now. 
<laughs> so I am originally from nowhere near the ocean. I'm from Kentucky. And you might hear if you, it in If you my couldn't accent. tell by her accent, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I get excited or I get, I get tired or I'm very passionate, I get really, really Southern. So I may get more Southern <laughs> as the conversation goes on. But I grew up in Kentucky and the only thing that I knew of the ocean, because remember this is pre-internet, pre-Google, all of that kind of stuff, was that we piled in the family truckster and we headed down to Siesta Key in Florida for once a year. That was our family vacation. And that was my only access to the ocean. And, you know, of course, as a little kid, you're more excited about the pool and the beach and right, right. not really thinking about the ocean, except that you get to jump in and play in the waves, right? So getting back to Kentucky, you know, I would leave that week behind and just think, have these great memories. Um, but I started realizing that I had this huge love for the water. And so, because I didn't have an ocean near me, so I'm like, well, what can I do for my outlet for the water? So I became a huge water skier. And oh, cool. I started water skiing in sixth grade. And it became like this huge pivotal thing in my life that so much so that I would ski before school or before work. And oh, wow. I would ski after school or after work. We actually created a club. We were called the Ski to Die Club, which if you put that together as an acronym, it'd be pretty funny. Um, just think of what ski to die it took me me a second I was like oh okay (laughs) oh yeah yeah Yeah, we had t-shirts made and everything we're we're real proud of it um (laughs) oh my goodness and so for me I was thinking you know even like during high school I'm like well what can I do with water skiing to create a career and my dad's like yeah you can do nothing with water skiing to create a career (laughs) did you did you water ski competitively in high school like well and not in high school because there wasn't a way to, but we did film a Mountain Dew commercial. They never picked it up, but we thought we were so cool, you know, because we got out there and we stuck a Mountain Dew like in our swimsuit and like right as you're coming up out of the water, we pull it out of our bathing suit and pop the top and we like hold it up and then pour it in our mouth for like to so hold it way up over our heads and pull it in our mouth while we're like right in the middle of sl- slalom skiing, like crossing a wake, like pouring this Mountain Dew and then we would flip out of the ski and then come back up out of the water holding the Mountain Dew. And we're like, yeah, we're awesome. We are so good. Somebody's going to pick this up. Yeah, they didn't. But we, we thought we were really cool when we were doing it. You but should it track that down, see to... if you can get it on YouTube or something. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, actually. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, that'd be terrible. No, I don't want people maybe, to see Maybe that. we can all try to <laughs> we'll recreate it. <laughs> send a link. Put a link yeah. in the show notes. Yeah. There we go. I'll recreate it at 52 years old. Somehow, I don't think it's going to have the same effect. <laughs> But it did take me um, to college. Uh, So I decided there were two things that I had to have out of college, which was football and water skiing. So that took me to the University of Alabama and immediately tried out for the water ski team. And they just kind of laughed at me and they're like, yeah, no, don't even think about it. So I made the B team, which I was all excited about. You know, that's like the backup. You're like the fourth string, right? You know, if somebody gets hurt, then they got to like put you in. I never got put in. Drink, drinking sodas to, while water skiing is not part of the tryouts for this team? <laughs> no, at, at that point, I was drinking beer while water skiing, just to mm. make that clear. Well, I was course, in college yeah. by that point. Yeah, That's the only <laughs> time make, I've ever water skied. <laughs> had to make the transition, right? You got to have beer with skiing. Yeah, right. But Alabama just wasn't like my groove. They, they actually got dressed up to go to football games, which I didn't understand at all That's why cool. people would put on a dress to go to a football game. And so I immediately chose the next school that had the best football team, which was Florida State. So I was getting closer to the ocean, not quite there yet, yeah. but I could, I could still water ski the whole time that I was at Florida State, which was just phenomenal. So I graduated, 
still had no clue, you know, 18 years old, 21 years old by that point, no clue what I wanted to do when I was in school. There wasn't like I had an advisor who was like, well, you like the ocean. Maybe you should go into marine science. No, I had my dad saying, you can sell ice to an Eskimo. You like to talk. You need to be in sales or communications. So that's what I did. I got a communications degree. Uh, Journalism was my backup degree. And I created a magazine called H2O Sports. And I was like, this is it. This is my path. I've created this really cool magazine. Again, somebody's going to pick it up. It's going to become super cool. Nobody did. It's like, no, nobody wanted this paper copy that I printed out, you know, of H2O Sports. That was not going to be a thing. So on my graduation day, I actually printed out my resume and I handed it to Ted Turner. So if you don't remember who he go. is, you know, Turner Broadcasting in Atlanta. And I was like, he gave the commencement speech at Florida State. And I'm like, oh, man, he's going to hire me. This is going to be great. I'm going to work in Atlanta for Ted Turner and life's going to be golden. Well, I got to Atlanta. I moved there. I didn't have a job. Just moved there after college. And I started doing some research about Turner Broadcasting. They start you off at $14,000 a year and they stick you in a cubicle on the 14th floor. Like you can't see your neighbor. You can't talk to anybody. And I'm like, oh, I clammy hands immediately. I'm like, okay, this is, this is not the path for me. This is not what I'm going to do. This is not uh, so what I was expecting. <laughs> no, not at all. You know, you expect like that corner office with a view, right? That's how everybody yeah. wants to start out right out of college. <laughs> so I said, screw it, got out of college and I traveled like so many kids do. And that led me down to the keys when I got back from traveling. Cause you know, I was still on my 22 year old, let's have fun with life. And so I moved to Marathon, which is about the middle of the keys. Well, that was my first exposure to real life. You know, because when I say I was from a tiny little town in the South. So when we moved there, the sign said 960 people. They flipped the sign over <laughs> when we moved there. It said 964. Oh, wow. So it was literally a tiny, tiny little town. So any outside exposure, I mean, even through college, I, I just was still lived in this bubble. So I got to the Keys and I worked for a resort and across the street was the Dolphin Research Center. And I was like, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something with dolphins. Why not? I'm in the Keys. It's awesome. You know, I'm sure they make some kind of money, right? There's something I can do. And at the same time, remember, this is the early 90s. They were trying to put in the first marine reserve in the Florida Keys. Okay. Well, that was the first time I ever met commercial fishermen. I thought they were the meanest people on the face of the planet because you had your scientists on one side presenting all this data about why we needed to preserve this area. You get your commercial fishermen on the other side of the room talking about how we're going to ruin their lives. They're not going to be able to do what they do. The, the tourist season for the wreck guys was going to go away. And there was one guy who stood up and he's like, let's take it to the shells. And <laughs> I remember I looked at the girl sitting next to me. I'm like, what the hell does that mean? I had no clue what he was talking about. Well, if you remember, that's when, like, especially in Florida and in the Gulf, all the bars, all the parking lots had oyster shells. And that's what they were covered in. Okay. And so well, that's what he meant. Let's take it to the shells. He wanted to take it outside mm-hmm. and have a fight. And he's telling this to Bill, Billy Causey, who has been with Noah for 35 years and is probably the nicest human being that you could ever want to meet. And he has changed the face of Noah and what they've been doing down in the Keys. Well, that was my first introduction. And I'm like, I want no part of this industry. These people are crazy. I don't want to be in science. I don't want to have anything to do with fishing. I mean, these people are just kind of 
lunatics. I'm going to stick with the dolphin side because they seem a lot more docile and everybody's really friendly and they're happy creatures and all this kind of stuff. Well, none of that worked. The whole dolphin thing was a big dream. And I left the keys because it's, you know, it's, my dad it's a dream like, that you shared with every single student who's ever everybody. studied marine biology. Everyone goes into marine biology thinking they're going to train dolphins. That's <laughs> that's where it starts. Of course. So yeah, it is you, because you know, it's you realize, this big happy smiley creature. I will say I went to school for uh, aquaculture and fishery tech, not knowing what aquaculture was. But my state university did not offer aquaculture as a um, as a major, so I got a tuition break because nice. I said, well, I wanted to do this, but they don't offer it. I just wanted to do marine bio, but I did this right. to get the tuition break and found out what aquaculture was later. But my goal was I want to be an aquarist. I want to be the guy diving in the in the tanks at the aquarium. And then of I got a job at the I got a job at the aquarium. Um, and I realized that those jobs, people work those jobs until they die. And <laughs> yes, they do. Once once that happens, <laughs> once you get in that spot, you don't leave. Yeah. Once that happens and the job opens up. They have people that have been volunteering, you know, chopping up fish and, and doing for the decades. behind the scenes stuff for decades, working for free. And those are the people that get the job. And I and I just like couldn't do it. <laughs> I had to find something else. That, so, yeah, that I, wasn't your I, path. <laughs> I did the same thing. I did the same thing. I got out of college. and I was like, I'm going to go become an aquarist. I'm going to dive in the shark tank at the aquarium and it's going to be awesome. And then you get hit with reality, you know? Yeah. Reality can be so, harsh, sucks. man. Sometimes it can be it really sucks. sucky. Yeah, yeah, totally. But, you know, I mean, it leads you down. Now Now I'm talking to you on this podcast and we're the top podcast <laughs> in the seafood industry. So, you know, well, sometimes it leads you down a good path. I haven't even gotten my seafood career yet. So yeah. I, I'm still stuck in the keys trying to trying to do dolphin stuff. Um, <laughs> and so I finally left because my dad at that point was like, I paid for all this college. You've got to do something with it. Get out of the keys. You're just like laying on a surfboard, <laughs> drinking beer and playing with dolphins. So I actually moved back to the South, and so I became a DJ, of all things. TJ the DJ. Perfect. Mm. Hey, my dad's uh, a DJ. You, no shame. went by? Yeah. Real, real, <laughs> real, real unique name, huh? Put a lot of thought into that. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's catchy. I, I won't forget it. That's pretty good. I'll say <laughs> yep, this. It's, we, it's better than your, your water skiing club. The name. Oh, come on, man. That, <laughs> you don't a, get better well, than ski to die. It's a you little more appropriate. <laughs> uh. um, yeah, we had the mor- we had a morning show. It was me and a co-host. And um, now I'm not a morning person. And so I had to be at the studio by, you know, 4.30, o'clock every morning. Mm-hmm. And so every morning we put a call out, you know, whoever would bring us Diet Coke, would be the first person to get Diet Coke to the studio would win tickets to something. And so every day we would have people just like pulling up with buckets and cases and six packs and like rushing to get there by five o'clock in the morning with all this Diet Coke. It was the only thing that saved us because I didn't drink coffee. And um, I remember <laughs> one of the most interesting things that we did at the radio station. And I promise I'll get to seafood. I promise. It, I told yeah. you it was a stumbling I'm loving this. Pathway. I'm loving this. Keep going. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we... We put out, we had these great concert tickets for something. I don't know what it was. And so we did a game and it was like the dating game. And so we had all these people sign up and to win, they had to take me on a date. And I would never do this again in a million years. But we had all of these people that submitted their names. Well, the winner, you know, I didn't know what he looked like. Because again, no internet, no way to research these people. So he shows up at the radio station. He was six foot three. Had on overalls, like complete overalls, head to toe. And he had this mullet that he must have combed for like four hours to get it super straight. (laughs) That it went all the way down the back of his head to the middle of his back. 
and the front was just that you know that business in the front it was totally yeah. oh, partying yeah. Total was he at least wearing a shirt? Because for some reason I'm picturing like <laughs> suspenders with no shirt. Uh, he did. Sorry. He had. He, he did have on a t-shirt underneath his overalls. Oh, okay. But, okay. And he did. He borrowed an old Corvette from a friend of his oh to come pick me up. It's just so a perfect had, image. That's just he's got it, it down. It, totally. He he rocked it, man. He brought me flowers. <laughs> he did the whole spiel, <laughs> and um. Yeah, then we had to go to dinner and of course we had the whole radio crew there and we did a live remote, you know, from the restaurant so we could talk through the whole thing. <laughs> but that was my first time ever to be on a dating game and I don't think that I would ever do it again. First and but, last. First and last, but it was a good experience and Jethro or whatever his name was 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 really a nice guy. <laughs> he really was. So, I I left radio and I went straight into newspapers. Because, you know, communication, major sales, that's what I was supposed to do, right? So I'm still young. I'm still in my 20s. And I'm like, okay, I can handle this. I can make this work. Well, I moved to Baltimore and started working for the Baltimore Jewish Times. Well, I'm not Jewish. And that's okay. But I didn't understand anything about, because where I came from in the South, there was not a big Jewish population. So now I'm in Baltimore, which has a, a huge Jewish population. Which, which is why they have five newspapers. And so there was this big learning curve for me on how do I sell, you know, for this newspaper, for a Jewish community of which I didn't really have much understanding. Well, needless to say, that was a pretty short-lived career. It didn't really go over that well for me. And I booked it back down to the South and started working in Nashville and started working for a radio station again. I was like, this is more my comfort level. I'm a big deadhead. I'd followed the dead around for a long time. I'm like, it just seems like a normal, normal transition to go back to radio. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's so a great place. That's ha- a great town to get into radio. Well, exactly. I mean, Music my, City, if my, you can, that's crazy. That's pretty good. Well, and my coverage was the, the music scene. So anybody that wanted to put an ad on the radio who had somebody come into their venue had to go through me to get it on the radio. So it was like, it was a killer gig. It yeah, was that's really pretty good. good. And so my six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon was actually first degree. So <laughs> him and his brother came and they were going to perform at the radio station. And I didn't have anything to do with the artist, but I got in the elevator and I looked over and I'm like, you're Ke- <laughs> <laughs> That was all I could get out. I mean, it was like, I couldn't get, it's not like I was meeting the president of the United States or something. Right. It was Kevin Bacon. And I'm like, <laughs> you're, you're in elevator, Mr. Bacon. I'm like, so what I call you, Mr. Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> Episode title. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Bacon. <laughs> he was actually a super nice guy. Oh, I can and, imagine. I mean, he, he looks exactly like he does just on TV. And he was so like down to earth and grounded and just tried to make me comfortable. This 20 something year old who was like nervous as all get out. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my Kevin Bacon story. Cause you know, everybody's got to have one. Yeah. His secret, his life, secret right? is, is rage dancing. When you get really angry and upset, you go, Find an abandoned building and dance it out. Find a foot loose. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's the secret. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I and he's dealt right. with a lot. You know, he's dealt with the giant sandworm thing, and like so, you know, he's got he's got some history. So good for him. I'm glad he does he's doing have some it. history. And he, and he was a ghost. Oh yeah, it was that in Flatliners. What was I think the Invisible Man or something, wasn't it? Ooh, I have to see that one. I'm not I haven't sure. Seen that I got. I'll have to queue up it's, IMDb was, later. But. <laughs> yeah, hopefully I'm not thinking of someone else. Hopefully, Sorry, Kevin, if you're listening. Yeah, hopefully you're not getting mixed up with Patrick Swayze. 
Yeah. Oh no, yeah, not, I think not, you are. No. He wasn't making uh, pottery, <laughs> with, pottery. pottery with Demi Moore. <laughs> I'll give him. A, I'll give him a call once we get off. And yeah, yeah. I'll get the scoop for yeah. you. If you, you can get, him, you get him on this call, so we can ask him some questions, that'd be great. I'm oh, sure the experiment happened and it turned him invisible, and then he wreaked havoc on the town or something I'm like sh- that. I'm sure he's too busy to get on the call right at the moment, but yeah. I'll give I'll give him a call as soon as we're done. I'll set <laughs> okay. this up for us. Sounds good. <laughs> so I'm working at the radio station. And you know how you get that like itch in the back of your neck where like, you know, this isn't working. I don't like this. This isn't like my jam. I, you know, and I'm like I said, I'm, I meet people like Kevin Bacon, but I'm dealing with doing the music scene. So I should have just loved it because I was a music junkie. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, I, this this just didn't in me. And so I decided at that point, I really wanted to figure out some way to work with the ocean. And I had no idea why I was still on that dolphin thing in the back of my head. And so I started taking classes at Tennessee state and my whole goal was to get a second bachelor's in biology. Well, I decided where I wanted to go was UC Santa Cruz. Now, if you've never been there, man, this campus is like fairy tale, right? You've got, you've got hippies, you got music, you got fish, you got ocean, you know, what more could you ever want? Well, I had to fly out there for an interview just to get my second bachelor's, which I didn't know that was a thing. Oh, wow. And I flew out there and I'm all excited because, you know, I've, I, I've gotten into every college I've ever applied for. And I'm like, I'm older now. I've got, you know, some years working under my belt. I can mm-hmm. talk to anybody. And um, the lady looks at me and she goes, yeah, there's no chance in hell you're getting in here. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? I'm like, I have set my whole sights on coming to the school. And I flew out here for this interview. And she's like, we're going to take 20 people. Oh, from wow. outside of the state, 20 people. I'm like, well, how many people do you have that have applied? And she said, 5,200. <laughs> oh, geez. And I'm like, okay, I think I'll just pack my bag and go back home and keep taking classes at Tennessee State oh. University. So I did. I took, uh, you know, took all my lower level biology again, took my upper level biology, my chemistry, my physics, calculus, all those fun classes mm. that... My first round of college, I was a little too busy doing fun stuff to really care about. And I asked one of my professors, I said, if I want to get into this marine world, how do I do that? And I live in a landlocked state. What do I need to do? I'm like, I can't go to California. I couldn't get in. And he actually sent me, he started my path. He said, go to the GCRL. And I'm like, the who? It's the Gulf Coast Research Lab. So it's in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. It's a tiny little facility that is doing amazing stuff. It's still there today. And I went there and that's where I took my first ichthyology class. That's where I took my first marine biology class. You spent all your time out on the water, like, you know, pulling up nets, seeing what's actually in the Gulf of Mexico, mm-hmm. measuring, weighing. I mean, that was my first experience with any of that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is just, I'm like, people do this? People do this for a living? Really? It's amazing when you can get that hands-on experience in school. Like I, I did a lot of that in school too. And I just remember being like, cause I'm from a small town, New Hampshire too. And it's like, this is, this is amazing. We're actually doing it. It's really, it, it opens it's up awesome your world. When you yeah. actually start doing something and I'm yeah. like, why aren't, why aren't more colleges that hands-on? I didn't, mm-hmm. maybe I had just missed that in my first round, but I had a professor at GCRL and I asked him, his, his name was Dr. Walter Connolly and we called him Dr. C. And not because it was Dr. Connolly, but because he studied copepods. And that was the first time in my life I learned even what a copepod was. And I'm like, oh my God, how have I not known this? You know, but it hasn't been my world. I'm like, it's the basis of food webs and Mm -hmm. ecosystems. And it's everything, you know, to start that chain in the ocean. 
And so I asked him, I said, well, you know, what do I need to do, you know, to do this? And he's like, well, find an internship somewhere. And so he made a couple of recommendations and sure enough, I found my dolphin internship. Hell yeah. So I packed up my car. I finally made it to California, to San Diego. And I started my dolphin internship with San Diego State. And I just thought I had arrived. I thought it was so cool. I'm like standing on the bank, studying dolphins, you know, doing my thing. And then I started talking to the, these other interns. They've been doing the same thing for like seven years. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, seven years? I'm like, how long do y'all plan to be standing on a shore studying dolphins, swimming up and down the coastline? I'm like, when do you get a job? Where do you get a job? <laughs> so one day we, were, we had an opportunity to go to SeaWorld. And we were going to study dolphins, you know, in captivity versus in the wild because they were talking about putting in a wave machine and that they wanted to see if the dolphins would start mimicking the, the dolphins in the wild if they put in this wave machine. And while I was there, I was talking to some people, you know, about, yeah, I really want to get in this industry. How do I do it? Help me. Let me break in. And they said, go to hubs. And I'm like, well, what's a hubs? <laughs> and hubs SeaWorld Research Institute. So Hubs is on the back end of SeaWorld in San Diego. They pay a penny a year so that they can lease the land from SeaWorld. And that's where all the research takes place. And so I walked over there and I'm like, hi, I'm here. What do you need? And they're like, oh, we need volunteers. I'm like, okay, sign me up. Sign me up. So my first day, they stuck me in the necropsy lab with about 500 fish heads. And I'm like... (laughs) what the hell have I done? I'm like, what am I doing? And I'm like, okay. And they gave me this little wand and they're like, scan the fish heads, see if there's a tag in it and then take out the otolus. And I'm like, none of that meant anything to me. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> I'm just standing in there and okay. Necropsy labs and me don't get along very well. So like day one, I'm standing there. I got like 500 fish heads around me and I had just eaten breakfast and I'm like, oh, this is not going to be good. This is really not going to be good. Like my first day, I got really skinny. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Working in the necropsy lab because I did not retain a lot of food. Yeah. But the program was really cool. It was called the Ocean Resource Enhancement Program. And it's still going on today, which is, I think is really neato because I mean, this was, oh my gosh, this was in 1998. So it was a long time ago. Uh, So it was all about white sea bass and it was about restocking the white sea bass off the Southern California coast. Well, this, again, this was all new to me. I had no idea what any of this stuff was about. Uh, So where all the white sea bass heads came from is that we would go meet recreational fishermen and we had a program, you know, trying to get them to give us their heads back so then we could try to kind of track where they were coming from um, and where they were being caught. You know, we had our little boat where we would go out and set our nets and pull up our nets. And that was the first time I was doing, you know, that kind of actual work. But then one day they took us up to Carlsbad and they're like, this is the hatchery. I'm like, the who? The what? (laughs) I had no idea what a hatchery was. And I had, it didn't make any logical sense to me back then of why they were trying to grow fish, all these little fingerlings in these like raceway tanks. I didn't, I couldn't comprehend it. I didn't get it. I'm like, just let me go back to mending my nets and pulling up my nets and counting my fish and it took me a long time to realize that was the whole basis of the program, right? They were growing these fish so then they could restock the population and then they could track where the fish were actually being caught and where they were going. And at that point, I couldn't put two and two together. It just didn't make any sense to me. You know, I was hired to do one thing and then I'm up at this hatchery and they're doing a completely different thing. 
And that was my whole introduction to aquaculture. And so I sat down with a scientist at Hubs, and I'm like, you got to explain this to me. Her name's Paula Sylvia. Yeah, you need a bigger picture, right? still in the industry right? today. Yeah, I, I had to understand. Yeah. And so Paula is still in the industry. I ran into her a couple of years ago at a conference, an aquaculture conference. Uh, she actually works for the Port of San Diego, creating all of the aquaculture projects that are coming under the Port of San Diego. But she sat down with me and explained the whole mechanism behind aquaculture. What were the benefits, what they were trying to you know, research, what they were trying to grow. And she's like, all right, now why don't you go out back and you can take care of those tanks that are out back? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so we had these big tanks out back where we were growing stripers, striped bass. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first time I was like in charge of cleaning and feeding and weighing and, you know, water quality and all that. And so it, it finally was starting to put like the whole picture into place. But keep in mind, I'm still volunteering at this stage. I'm going to grad school and I have no income and Southern California is really super expensive. So while I was going to grad school, I was like, I've got to get some more internships under my belt. So somebody will actually pay me because the guys at hubs were like, yeah, well, okay, we'll pay $8 an hour. So they moved me up to $8 an hour. Which is it, I, I will say it, it's a it, in research facilities and the, the type the aquarium facilities, like where you were like at SeaWorld and all that. Very, very hard to get paid work. <laughs> Very, very, very hard. hard. Very um, hard. Like, like I mean, not just like that they have limited funds and they pay, and they pay lo like just logistically, it's very, very difficult to get a an actual job at those places. It is. And I think, you know, the people that I worked with are still there. Like you said, they, they go mm -hmm. in to die. You know, they will be there until they <laughs> die. And you're not going to become that next, you know, head researcher unless one of them dies. And I was like, holy cow. I mean... I was, you know, still in my late 20s, early 30s thinking, when am I going to be 60 before I get a job? How's this going to work? <laughs> um, so I ended up taking out to the Bahamas for a couple months to do some shark research. And I was like, okay, this is going to be my path. This is, this is going to get it. Uh, so whereas on a tiny little island, it was Little Bimini. And we all lived in this like field station that was basically like a glorified trailer. And we go out and we were trying to do research on what the sharks were feeding and where they were feeding and all that good stuff. Well, one night they dropped another girl and me off on this little spit of land. So don't think of like the big Bahamas, you know, like Nassau, that kind of stuff. This is a spit of land with absolutely nothing on it. And my job was to pull up the nets, weigh the fish, measure the fish, count the fish, you know, what, what were we finding, all that kind of stuff. Well, we had one headlamp between us and a radio. Well, the headlamp died and then the radio went out. <laughs> so we sat there for six hours in complete, complete darkness. Oh, I mean, think of like a horror story where you can hear things rustling all around in the bushes. There were no stars. There was no moon. And I'm like, we're going to die on this little island in the Bahamas. And nobody's <laughs> going to know where in the hell we are. <laughs> we're just surrounded by the, all these little fish. And they just, they completely forgot about us. And they just oh, left man. us out there in the middle of nowhere for like six <laughs> hours. We were supposed to wrap up at like 11 at night. They came back to get us at like three in the morning. Jeez. So, we, so um, but I have to say it was an amazing experience that opened my eyes. It was the first time I'd seen the Gulf Stream. So we had to get in a boat to go to Rasmus in Miami to get food. And we always rotated who got to go. And so one day I got chosen and I got to go. That was the first time I'd ever seen the Gulf Stream. It was literally like finding Nemo. You know, you had the turtles <laughs> swimming by and the color water changed colors. And I was like, wow, I 
never seen anything like it in my life. And I felt really lucky to be a part of that. But I had to go back to reality, had to go back to San Diego to make an $8 an hour. And by that point, they're like, oh, you're really working at this. You got an internship. You're going to grad school. We'll give you 12 bucks an hour. I was like, oh, yes. hey. You know, moving up in the world, moving right? Moving up, yeah. <laughs> moving up, moving up. So then my, my thesis, I was studying manta rays. And the whole reason why I started, started studying manta rays was because of the copepod. Um, mm-hmm. Like they eat plankton. I want to learn about it. That's what Dr. C did. That's like so cool. So I took out to Hawaii for about three months. And when we weren't on land, we lived on this decommissioned NOAA vessel. Well, the reason why it was decommissioned is because it had no bathroom. Oh, geez. <laughs> it was really old. It barely had a kitchen. Like we cooked a lot of oatmeal over like a Bunsen burner kind of a thing oh, for like months. And you would have to tie yourself on to the bunks because they were so rickety. And when we get bad storms, you would just go flying out of your bunks. <laughs> you literally had to tie yourself on. Well, we hadn't seen manta rays for a couple days. And the guy, the main researcher guy, he's like, hop in the water and grab the rope. And I'm like, what? He's like, just grab the rope. And he just barely puts the boat in gear. And he's like, keep your face down. And, um, oh my God, it was my Jacques Cousteau moment of my entire life, which is like what solidified that I had to be in the ocean, on the ocean, working with people on the ocean, no matter what. I, I mean, he was towing me over these huge coral heads where I'd never seen anything like that in my life. I mean, ever. It was just life. It was teeming with life. And then you had the sea turtles that came up and were swimming by. And I was like, you know, there's nobody down there but me. And I'm pointing. I'm like, look, look, look. (laughs) And then I popped my head up. Must have been like a thousand Pacific white-sided dolphins all just like went all right by my head. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is just amazing. Well, he starts screaming at me. He's like, put your head back in the water. Put your And I'm like, no, the dolphins. I put my head back in the water and it was like, I can't do Finding Nemo. I can't do the whale. That was pretty close. That was pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) I knew what you were doing. Thank you. (laughs) Justin speaks fluent whale. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I understood you. Thank you. We'll have a conversation offline about that. Justin. Yeah. Okay. There there aren't many people. Stay tuned for episode two. All in whale. (laughs) (laughs) But it was the humpback whales were going by. And so I had the turtles, the coral, the dolphins, the whales. I mean, it was literally like one of those moments that you could not create except like in a movie. And it was actually happening in my life. And I'm like, holy shit, this is it. This is I have to figure out how to make this work Mm -hmm. for my world, because it was like this whole passion just like turned on and took off. And so, of course, I you know, come back to San Diego and I'm like, okay. I'm I'm in. I'm writing my thesis. Life is great. And then I had like life issues, right? So I ended up getting divorced from my hippie husband who just literally just wanted to follow music and do some other stuff with his life. And I'm like, oh, now I have to get a real job. I, I <laughs> there there weren't two of us anymore. I had to like figure out how to make it work. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, well, well shit. So that like totally derailed me. And I saw there was a environmental consulting firm it's a global firm called aecom and they said they were starting a marine resources division i was like sweet all right this will be it so you know i went i applied i got the job it was the first time i ever had benefits like real benefits in my entire life probably good to have um benefits when you drink and water ski so that is very true (laughs) i wish i had that when i was younger (laughs) 
<laughs> I wish I'd had that when I was younger. That would have been a great thing. But as it turned out, they didn't want to do a lot of marine resource kind of work. You know, I got to do some essential, essential fish habitat studies and some eelgrass work. But most of the time, man, they stuck me out in the desert. Like, you know, I was looking at arroyo toads and all of these creatures that by this point I knew nothing about. Right. And I'm like, what part of marine don't you get? And they really didn't. They're like, we're just going to stick you in a wetland. Can you delineate a wetland? I'm like, no, I don't know how to delineate <laughs> a wetland. I'm not even really sure what a wetland is. But I have to say with that job, that was the first time I ever saw illegal immigrants. So we were working right against the border of Mexico. Like literally you could, the wall, you could reach out and touch the wall, except border patrol wouldn't let you. And I had a whole team working with me. And all of a sudden I saw these people come running. And I'm like, Who, what, what? That's not my field crew. What's going on? And there were these people crouching really low and running. Well, I got on the radio and I radioed my crew, which was from, most of them were from Mexico. I'm like, what do we do? Do we give them food? Do we give them water? Do we call somebody? And they're like, just stay away. Just stay away. I'm like, okay, I'm staying away. Do not I don't engage. know what to do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I literally backed up my truck. I loaded up my crew. I'm like, everybody out. Everybody out. Like, <laughs> like they were going to come running for us or something. I had no clue what to do. Wow. But so... AECOM was was pretty short-lived because there was no marine work, right? And I was kind of devastated with that. Mm. But what I did do is I met one of my best friends and colleague who I'm actually working with today, Stephanie Russo. And so we both decided we were had lived in Florida for years. She was a sea turtle ecologist and she wasn't doing any of that work. We're like, let's move back to Florida. Let's get on the other coast. It's a lot cheaper. Maybe we can like both get back in our fields. Mm. And so I got a job with an environmental consulting firm on the East Coast in St. Augustine. And the way we picked out St. Augustine is because it looked good in pictures. Well, <laughs> And it was surrounded by water. So that's literally how we picked St. Augustine. That meets the criteria. It was just like kind of... <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, pretty Check much. Box. Yeah, Check the box. <laughs> Postcards uh, so and water. We, we came... Yeah, exactly. And, and some beer. They had good beer. Oh, well, yeah. Um, okay. Third box. <laughs> third box, Yes. So we came all the way across the country. Uh, we're in St. Augustine. And again, they didn't want me to do anything with the marine world. Hmm. I mean, we did some really cool stuff. You know, we, we studied bald eagles. We, um, we established the first wetland mitigation bank in the entire state of Florida, which was really super cool. And I'll tell you all one, one funny story that came out of working there. So I started as a senior scientist, ended up as the VP of operations, you know, helping run the entire company. But one day we actually were going to get on the water and I was so excited. So we had our little boat. We're talking like a John boat. So we're talking small. And so we're out on this lake and we're doing some surveys. And this is a military base where we were. So the guy who, you know, got us all ready and got us into the water, he was an ex-Navy SEAL. So we figured he knew what he was doing. You know, we're like, you can drive the boat. You got everything under control. Well, all of a sudden we're driving along and we're like, putt, putt, the whole motor fell off. The whole motor fell off the damn boat into the lake. And so we're sitting there completely dead in the water. And we're like, you're a Navy SEAL. How'd you let the motor fall off the boat? He's like, you're a marine biologist. Why didn't you check the motor? <laughs> oh, my God. So we're sitting in this boat. And remember, we're in prime alligator country, right? So this alligator swims up. And I don't know whether he thinks that we're an alligator or if he just thinks he wants to eat us because we're not an alligator. He gets underneath this little John boat and he starts doing barrel roll, rolls. 
and just starts rolling around in circles. Oh, well, the whole boat is rocking like back and forth. You've never seen three people scream so loudly, so fast, because we're, we're like, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. This alligator is going to eat us all. We're just going to die. And finally, he got tired and he just swam away after we were like, we've all said our prayers. We're all going to die. That's it. And uh, finally, somebody came and towed us to shore. And so the next day, we had marked the lat long of where it was. We came back, we put on scuba gear, and we actually found the motor. <laughs> I'm sure that was, so I'm, sure, did, I'm sure you guys were all really excited to get into the water where that happened. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were, there was a little trepidation there, just, <laughs> I can a, just a little bit. But the threats that came from our boss, if we didn't get in the water, were worse. Those were even worse than the thought of the alligator. Yeah. So, you know, we got in the water and we got it and we got out of there. But, Environmental consulting is a great field and I recommend it for a lot of people, but it was the same thing. I had that itch in the back of my neck of when the hell am I ever going to get, you know, back to the ocean and doing something that I wanted to do. So I started looking around and I saw this job that came open for a very long winded name, the Gulf of Mexico Reef Fish Shareholders Alliance. Say that three times fast. Nope. Or GAMRFSA. Oh, I like As that better. Is. That's good. We're, we're used to acronyms. We prefer acronyms in this industry. Okay. You know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Gamurfsa. So Gamurfsa uh, was a fisherman-led nonprofit in the Gulf of Mexico, and they had just been established, and they were looking for their first executive director. And I'm like, oh, you know, what the hell? I'm going to apply. I didn't know how to be an executive director. I've been working for for-profits now, you know, for the last, what, eight years after I left Hubs. I had no idea what executive director actually did. So I was trying to research it, trying to learn about it. I was trying to relearn about fisheries in the Gulf of Mexico. And I'm like, there's no chance that these people are actually going to even talk to me. And they did. And it's kind of a miracle that they did. Uh, but there was one fisherman who was on the board and his name was Buddy Gwendon. He's based out of Galveston. And he took me under his wing and he taught me everything there was to know about the Gulf of Mexico, about the fishermen, about the fishing community, about why they did what they did, you know, who I needed to talk to. And this was right at the time that the quota system was coming online. Okay. And so there was a lot of, there was a lot of angst yeah. happening. Some serious in the agitation in the, uh, in the waters. <laughs> serious uh, agitation is a, is a polite word to you, Sean. That's a, yeah. a very polite word. Well, you there understand was, you've um, been in broadcast before you you know you there use those words <laughs> that's true but there were people taking it to the shells <laughs> over the quota system <laughs> and um so that was again kind of being thrown into the fire and i was like what have i done why do i keep making these huge mistakes of all these people who just like infighting mm. but what buddy showed me and what i learned is that you know these are third and fourth generation fishermen right mm -hmm. And they're not about the infighting. What they were concerned about is being able to fish yeah, and being able to keep their history and their culture of what they've done for so many generations. And they were afraid that people, the government was just going to kind of take that away from them. Yeah. You need or to look at it from, from their point of view them. and it is their lives and their livelihoods. It's a, exactly. What a and difficult was, rope to walk, you know? It really was because, yeah. you know, I was thinking all science mm -hmm. and I wasn't thinking about the people. And once I transitioned and I really started thinking about, well, this is what they do every single day. And I learned what long lining was and I learned what bandit gear was. And I learned about the reef fish complex. You know, those were all new. That was all new terminology to me. 
And that's when the acronym SOUP, that is the seafood world today, really started going into place because you were talking about MSY and total allowable catch, you know, your TAC, and you're talking about quotas. And literally, I remember being at a, uh, one of my first Gulf Council meetings, and they actually put up on the big screen all the different, like 40 different acronyms so that people would know what everybody was talking about because it was all so new. It was a whole new language mm-hmm. to people. And my first Gulf Council meeting literally almost had me running for the hills because I stood up, I introduced myself, I introduced the organization you know, that were new. We represent five states in the Gulf of Mexico, commercial fishermen, the reef fish fishermen. I was so proud of myself. I thought it was great. Well, in the South, when you hear somebody say, bless your heart, that is never a good <laughs> <Yeah>. thing. <laughs> it basically means they're, they're, they're swearing at you, pretty much. They're swearing at you when they say, bless your heart. So I stood up there and there was this lady from Mississippi and she represented the recreational sector. So she was completely anti-commercial fishing. And so she started asking me, she goes, how many people do you have in your organization? Why do you feel like we need a commercial fishing organization? Are you trying to take all the fish away from the recreational fish? I mean, she just like was, and then I was just standing there in silence because I was expecting these people to be all professional, you know, and excited to have a commercial fishing organization here represented at the Gulf Council. Mm-hmm. And then I was quiet and she looked at me and she goes, oh, honey, are you okay? Bless your heart. (laughs) Well, then I just got angry, man. I'm like, how dare you? I'm like, you know, I'm here. That's kind of when the whole pride thing that these were real people, you know, I'm like, I'm here representing these families, these communities, these people, and they just want to keep doing what they're doing and they want to figure out how they can do it better so that there are still fish for the future. Mm And if that you're a fourth generation kind of fisherman, you want the generations after you to be fifth and sixth and seventh generation fishermen. You can't do exactly. that. There's no fish and, left. And that's what that was the whole premise of the organization. So, you know, it started just based around, um, you know, quota, quota shares, looking, trying to establish maybe a quota bank to get a new entrance into the, the fishery. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was really about protecting their livelihoods. And I remember at one point, you know, we were trying to figure out how we could be more conservation friendly, right? So we actually offered our boats up to NOAA because they were talking about changing, making some gear changes to long lines. And the guys were like, this is a death trap. We can't catch fish with the way that NOAA is trying to design our lines. And I'm like, well, what if we donate our boats to them for research and they come on with the fishermen? And, you know, this was way back in like 2010, so, I mean, people weren't really offering up commercial fishing boats at that point mm-hmm. to work with like, regulators because there was still like a, the continental divide. Yeah. And yeah. it was the first time, at least in my limited experience, you know, NOAA came on and they're like, well, holy shit, that the whole thing we designed won't work. And you actually heard the scientists say, we listen to the industry. This won't work. We have to come up with a different design that's still going to, you know, protect the fishery but also work for the fishery. Right. And I just thought that was the biggest revelation because you, that was the first time I'd ever seen like the regulators, the science side of it, which I was so ingrained in that was like all tuned in in my brain and the fisherman community wanting to work together to figure out how to solve a problem Mm -hmm. that worked for both entities, which I just thought was fantastic. Yeah. That's amazing. And so one of the things that we came up with, again, remember this is, this is 2010-ish, 2011, was that we wanted to put cameras on the boats. 
because we wanted to really see, you know, what they were catching, how we could change it to show people what they were catching, that they're not the bad, you know, scourges of the ocean, that they're actually out there just to do their job and to feed the American public. Well, I had two members of the team, big fishermen, highliners, if you want to call them that, you know, they were the guys who, who, who caught the majority of the fish. Well, they stood up, they looked at me and they gave me the double tall man. If you know what that means. Enlighten me. Gotcha. Yeah. Geez, Sean. Sorry. Do you know that? We have, we have plenty of other terms we use for that, but I've never heard that one. I wish I, I, so like, something I, today, I wish yeah. I had a, a, I wish I was ready for a, a screen cap during that. <laughs> that would be a great. Okay. We'll leave that out of the show notes. Use your that, imagination. Most people that would be great. Uh, great marketing on our Twitter page to have that photo of that. Oh, that'd be, oh, that'd be great. That's the picture I want sent out to everybody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. How'd the show go? Well, well, they just took a picture of me doing the double tall man. That's <laughs> uh, But after they walked out of the room, everybody's like, the organization will fall. You know, nobody's going to listen to you. The short little blonde chick who's trying to make, cam- you know, all these big burly fishermen put cameras on their boat, you know, because they took away a big chunk of the quota shares that our organization, you know, kind of represented as a whole. And what it did was it made the fishermen who were a part of the organization stand up and really want to embrace conservation from a a deeper perspective, because they thought if people aren't with us, that's all right, let them do what they're going to do. We're going to show the rest of the world that commercial fishermen can be the heroes in the story because we're here to make a living, but we're also here to feed a population, mm-hmm. right? And if putting cameras on our boats can help us tell that story, then let's do it. Now, it, that turned out to be kind of a big headache at the time because technology kind of hadn't, hadn't caught, caught up, up yet, to yeah. yeah where we wanted to be at that point. But the premise was good, right? And the mindset, more importantly, of the commercial fishermen was good. Yeah, that's almost the most important aspect of the whole. Exactly. They realized that, you know, conservation had to be a part of their daily lives. Like you said, if they want the fifth, sixth, seventh generation to keep doing what they're doing. So we're moving along. We're making some strides about conservation. We're working with, you know, regulators and scientists and NGOs and feeling pretty proud about our small little, you know, band of married fishermen in the Gulf of Mexico. And we were at a Gulf Council meeting, which is where we always had our board meetings. And we took a break and we all came out of the hotel room and we were just like standing there and we turned on the TV, um, like in the bar area and holy shit, that's when the oil spill happened. Oh. We were all standing there and you've never seen a room get so quiet. I mean, it, I, I still at that point didn't understand the ramifications of it. Every single member of that board and our members who were there just stopped dead in their tracks. Complete silence. I I mean, on so many levels. First, there was the thought of the people on the oil rig, right? You know, because that's horrific and what's happening there. And then their second thought was, are they going to get this capped? Sure, they're going to get it capped. This isn't going to become a big thing and life will go back to normal. But then there's the, well, what if? Yeah. And so instead of our board meeting, it just became literally everybody just sat and watched TV and watched news. And then everybody's phones started blowing up, mm-hmm. you know, of what do we got to do? How do we, how do we fix this? And obviously we couldn't fix it. 
But what happened was, is America stopped eating seafood from the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, you, you've seen those stories and you've heard about it, but these people were, were living that. And that's what we were in the middle of. And we had to figure out a way to tell the story to America that there were still areas in the Gulf of Mexico where it was okay to mm-hmm. eat the seafood, right? You know, because people, I mean, some of our fishermen, their sales had dropped between 30 to 40%. That's huge. And it happened like overnight because as soon as people mm-hmm. saw the news, they're like, well, we're not going to eat fish covered in oil. Right. And that obviously wasn't the case. And so that's where we took off and we launched, we had been planning, uh, you know, trying to come up with how we were going to launch a brand of traceable seafood. It was the first traceable seafood to come out of the Gulf of Mexico. So instead of planning and like having the whole game plan laid out, the whole marketing plan, all the conservation, you know, regulations in place, we're like, go, go, go. And so we launched Gulf Wild and Gulf Wild was the first traceable seafood that came out of the Gulf of Mexico. And it was a game changer. You know, we, we tested our seafood. We sent, you know, samples to a lab in Metairie, Louisiana, and they tested above like the FDA and no regulations to prove that it was safe. Mm-hmm. We went through, we tried so many different tags of like, how could we tag these fish so that the American public can feel safe about what they're eating? I mean, we tried them, um, to tag all these different fish and the tags would fall out. We actually ended up with like a garment gun. So if you know mm-hmm. the, like the tags on your clothes when you shop yep. Yep. and it's got that little plastic thing, well, that's what we ended up with after like round 52 of trying different tags that wouldn't stay in the fish. And we developed conservation covenants that the fishermen all had to sign of this is how they, this is how they were when they left the dock. Somebody met them when they came back to the dock. Somebody got on and inspected the seafood. And, you know, these are people that were willing to work within the organization to do this. And the commercial fishermen were all like, yeah. If this is going to help sell our seafood again and tell the story of it, do it, bring it on. So there was the first and foremost thought was how can we get our seafood back into the hands of the American public and do it in a way where we can show that we have conservation measures in place and that we understand the fear about the oil spill. And it took a long time. You know, we made presentations to NOAA to the Department of Commerce, to the Fishery Management Council. And sure enough, we've got in, you know, with a couple of key distributors, Fortune Fish, Seattle Fish, um, and they took it and they ran with it because they saw it as an avenue to really keep Gulf of Mexico seafood in the hands of the public and put this amazing story with it that was all based on it's safe. You, you learn where your fish is from, which was kind of a new thing at that time. And sure enough, those sales that were down by 30 to 40% went back to baseline and then increased by 30%. So we completely went the opposite direction and it was a pain, you know, cause you've got to tag the fish, you've got to send it, send them off for testing. You know, we had to develop an entire marketing brand around this And, you know, the fishermen are all for it, but they also, they just want to keep fishing. But what happened was that America embraced it. And we ended up in, um, you know, when we very first started, we were in 46 states, which is pretty amazing for this tiny little group of hardy fishermen from the Gulf of Mexico to really be trying to make a change and create this brand of seafood. Yeah. Um, And what it did is it it established 
that fishermen could be the champions, right? You know, that they wanted to do the right thing. They want to keep feeding a nation. They understand the nation's concern and they took matters into their own hands to address that. And uh, it was the right time, wrong place, because nobody wants to have an oil spill. Um, But it did launch a whole new initiative, you know, that came out of the Gulf of Mexico, which was absolutely just tremendous. And I have to say, that's like something that I am so proud of that I was a part of and made that happen uh, to this day. Um, I still talk about it all the time. I'm talking about it now because it, it was, it was pretty fantastic. And it kind of, it was a launch pin for a lot of other traceability platforms that became a lot more robust. And, you know, as, as time went on and technology increased, you know, have blown that system out of the water but it was kind of that launch point for a lot of those systems. And I think that's pretty and remarkable. Prove, prove that it was doable, right? Exactly. And it effective did. It and, was like and, that, had a, and made a difference, like made the impact. That's, that proof of concept. Yeah, exactly. Proof of concept yep. that actually worked. So while I was working there, I was actually um, at South by Southwest Eco. And I had a, a great panel of speakers, Eric Schwab, who's now what VP of Oceans at EDF, and Buddy, my fisherman, Barton Seaver, who I know y'all know well. Mm-hmm. And some other folks. So Eric Schwab at that point was vice president of conservation at the National Aquarium. And he's like, we're trying to start something at the National Aquarium. We don't know what. (laughs) Come do it. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. So I went and I packed up everything from my my little house in Florida because I told Buddy uh, the, the guy who like took me under his wing, the fisherman from Galveston, I was like, buddy, Eric's asked me to go to, to Baltimore, to the national aquarium. And he's like, well, if Eric's asked, you've got to go. And I'm like, all right, I got your blessing. So, so I'm going to go. I got to Baltimore and again, national aquarium, totally different mindset from working with a bunch of salty fishermen. Right. right? right yeah. So I'm literally fish out of water in this huge organization that knew nothing about seafood, didn't know what direction they wanted to go. Just knew that they didn't want to like duplicate Monterey Bay because that's already been done, mm-hmm. right? We didn't want to reinvent the same wheel. And so it was, it was a struggle of trying to figure out what to do. So we actually had um, what we called the East Coast Seafood Forum. And we brought in people from all parts of the industry, um, from consumers to distributors to sub- all, everyone in the supply chain, um, you know, Wegmans, Whole Foods, mm-hmm. uh, to the politicians that we drug over from Washington, D.C., and some politicians that were based in Maryland, we brought in watermen, and we asked the hard questions of what role does the National Aquarium, what does it need to play to help move this needle? Right. And does it need to move it just for this region, or do we need to move it for the entire country? And, you know, as you can imagine, there were some very vocal answers there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick Moonen was our MC though, and if you've ever had the opportunity or pleasure to talk with Chef Rick Moonen, Man, he can keep a room together and laughing all at the same time. He takes the angst right out of the room. Uh, so he he did fantastic with this forum and helping us draw out some of the answers um, of the direction that we needed to go. And what came out of that was aquaculture. So oyster farming was becoming a new great thing in the, the Chesapeake Bay. And aquaculture was obviously this burgeoning industry in the U.S. There was, um, you know, a lot of areas trying to f- grapple with it and figure out what it meant. And so we developed an aquaculture awareness campaign. So we teamed up with CERMAC out of Canada. Mm-hmm. And then we also teamed up with Wegmans. And Wegmans was like, you know, make us the poster child for this and let's try 
an aquaculture awareness campaign through Wegmans. And so we went full on, like train the trainer, you know, we trained the Wegmans staff on what aquaculture was, what are the benefits, why there didn't need to be a wild versus farm discussion ever in their stores. (laughs) It needed to be an and not an or. And the constant um, struggle, (laughs) the constant struggle that will go on for eternity. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Um, We've come so far. We've come so far. And it, it turned out to be a huge success. I mean, we got comments The the staff was elated to actually be learning, you know, because Wegmans does it right. I don't know if you know much about them, but, you know, their sustainability goals and objectives for not just seafood, but everything in their whole store mm-hmm. is as, about as high as you can get. And uh, they're primarily a Northeast chain. And I miss them on a daily basis because they're not in the South and I really wish they would come here, but I don't think they ever will because we have Publix, (laughs) but the staff embraced it because they fell in love with learning how to talk to their customers. You know, they'd gone through their Wegmans training, right. And why sustainable seafood needed to be a part of their repertoire of their language of what they needed to say, you know, but we dove a little bit deeper into the weeds and opened up a lot of eyes and then we started taking some customer surveys to see, you know, what customers were thinking about. And it was amazing because you, you had this transition in the very beginning of the campaign, you had these customers that would just, you know, come in and ask some basic questions. And then as the campaign went on, they were starting to ask more in-depth questions, you know, so about three months into the campaign, it became this transition and this flip. And what happened was it wasn't just an uptick in selling aquaculture. It was an uptick in selling seafood because people were asking questions. And now the staff, we had taken them, you know, from a, from a level two up to about a level five in their education. So I brought in Scott Nichols and I don't know if y'all have ever had the opportunity to talk to Scott. He's phenomenal. Amazing. He's way up here on the much higher, um, that PhD scale, which I don't have. And he came in as the aquaculture expert and really did the dive deep in the information. And what that did was it took the science side of it. And then I added in that whole communications science side of it into the layman's terms so that it made sense both for the consumer and uh, for the staff at Wegmans. And then we put the whole thing in the National Aquarium so that the 1.4 million people who walked through there could see what was happening and start to understand why aquaculture needed to be a part of their daily life conversation Mm -hmm. and that it wasn't just a one-off that they might hear this word and they think fish farming is a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, So the campaign, you know, landed with huge success and really proud in the way that that worked. And one thing that it did was it started conversations also with the watermen started transitioning because there was a lot of infighting again over oyster aquaculture and the wild oyster harvest yeah. fishery in Maryland. And so we took that opportunity. Yeah. The wild, the wild harvesting industry. And we start, we took that opportunity to educate, you know, that nobody was trying to displace anybody and really started having those conversations because we were right there, you know, in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, which was kind of an offshoot. It wasn't planned for this aquaculture campaign, but it, 
turned out to be a really positive offshoot of everything that we were doing. And because of that, I'm still working with some of those guys today because they were actually, so the Maryland guys, back when I was down in the Gulf, we used to do fishermen exchanges and we brought the Maryland guys down so that the Gulf guys can learn from the Maryland guys and the Maryland guys can learn from the Gulf guys. Kind of like, what are best practices? What works? What doesn't work? Yep, yep. Um, how do you deal with the regulators? How do you deal with the fishery management council? And they were really, the, the watermen in Maryland were really str- struggling at that time, you know, trying to find their way um, because the crab stock was so depleted. Oysters were depleted. You know, the, the health of the bay was, still is depleted. And um, so it kind of came around, at least for me, came around full circle to being able to work with some of those watermen again yeah, yeah. after, you know, six, seven, eight years later, which was fantastic. Oh, there's one story I got to tell y'all. So I'm going to segue. So when we were doing the fishermen exchanges, we brought in the Gullah Geechee Nation. Have you ever heard of them? No, I haven't. Okay. The Gullah Geechee Nation is North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. Um, And they were originally brought over from Africa as slaves. And they've actually uh, created their own nation out of those few Southern states and the way that one of the ways that they survive is fishing, um, you know, fishing right in their waters. And so they had always been working with government entities to allow them to fish the way that they culturally and that their you know, ancestors had always fished since like the 1600s. Uh, so they came over for a fisherman exchange and they brought a queen. So they have their own queen and her name is Queen Quet. And she is a force to be reckoned with. I mean, she comes in whole queen getup, dressed like a queen. <laughs> and yep. she didn't know anything about quota systems. She didn't want to know anything about quota systems. All she cared about was how could we help her fishermen, you know, in her, her Gullah Geechee nation, be able to still fish. And so what we did was we, we worked with her on how she could work with regulators. How could she work with the fishery management council and what could she do to help protect her nation? So that was the first time I ever met a queen. Uh, So I was pretty excited about that. (laughs) That is exciting. Um, Yeah, it it really actually was. And so after I left the aquarium, I ended up um, having to take care of my mom for a while. She fell into some ill health and uh, COVID hit. And so I was trapped in small town, Kentucky again. Right. So I'm, I'm away from the water. I'm away from my work. And, uh, so I started working remotely like everybody else. And I'd already been working in Mexico with, uh, small scale artisanal fishermen down there. So I've been flying back and forth to Mexico. My daughter and I were actually going to move there at one point in time. And my house didn't sell in Maryland, so that kind of made it impossible to go. And then we had all this family drama. Um, but it was, it's still a project that I'm working on. I'm working with my colleague, Stephanie, who I met all those years ago at AECOM. And so we've come full circle oh, wow. to be able to work on this project. So we work with fishermen down there who have been fishing the same way their entire lives. Mm-hmm. And we're working with them so that they don't catch sea turtles because remember, she's a sea turtle ecologist. And so I worked with them on creating a brand of seafood and she worked with them on giving her the data and the information as she's working through her PhD and for the university so that she can actually, you know, start tracking where these turtles are getting caught. And what's happened is 
is now you've got all these native fishermen in Mexico who are small scale fishermen. They, you know, they never have the hopes of exporting their shrimp that they catch, you know, to the U.S. It's all stays local. Um, But what they did want to do is they wanted all the tourists who come down to start buying their seafood, right? Because they thought they could get a higher price for it. Yeah. Well, now they actually can because they're working with a team of biologists who are creating this turtle safe seafood and working with them on how to catch seafood where they don't entangle their turtles. And if they do, then give us the data so that we can track it and try to create that stop, you know, of, of what's been happening. And it's been amazing. It's like a little mini Gulf wild (laughs) in the Gulf of Mexico or Gulf of um, California uh, but with fishermen who have never even thought, you know, they just catch a turtle and that's just part of their daily right. lives. Yeah, yeah. And now all of a sudden we're teaching them, like we started out literally by trading gear with them. So we would give them grunions so that they would have something to wear on the boat, you know, so that they weren't sopping wet. They didn't even have that. And we would trade that for information or oh, we would buy them gas cards for information, you know, so very small trades. And the information that we would get out of that was tremendous Invaluable, and yeah. gave us the opportunity. Yeah. gave us the opportunity to really be a game changer. And now it's a game changer for these guys because you have tourist groups that are coming in and they specifically ask for this seafood. And now we're working with these tourist groups that come in. And so we know when they're, you know, these different tourist groups are coming into town and we'll pre-sell this turtle safe shrimp to them before they even get into town. And so the, the fishermen are over the moon, right? Because their shrimp is sold before they even get it back to shore and they're getting a higher price for it. And now they can say, you know, they're going and speaking at conferences. They're on panels talking about how they're the conservationists, that they're protecting their industry. They're protecting their fishery. They're protecting the, you know, the sea turtle. It's a whole shift of philosophy for these guys. Nice. I know it's amazing. And it all started with, well, if we give you a gas card for, will you give us some information? You know, if we buy you some grunions, will you give us, if we buy you some boots, will you give us some information? And that model has like since morphed, but that's how simplistic it started, which I think is awesome. Pretty cool. Um, I don't, I don't want to cut you off at all, but we, we've Uh, we've been going, we're actually about 15 minutes past time. So we've been going for a little bit. I'm a long talker. um, (laughs) It's okay. It's great. It's great content, but um, I just wanted to know, where are you at right now and what is kind of coming in the future? So right now I'm working on um, the, the brand of seafood in Mexico and mm-hmm. that I'll be down there in a couple months to be able to do some more work with that and work with the fishermen. But I'm also working with a group out of Maryland. So the same guys that I was working with, you know, way back in the Gulf. And then when I was at the National Aquarium, I got a call from one gentleman. His name's Johnny Shockley. And he's like, you remember that vision you had of being able to like bring the oyster farmers and the watermen together? He goes, we're going to make it happen. You're going to make it happen. And I'm like, all right, let's, let's do it. (laughs) And, um, so I'm a senior advisor with them. It's called blue oyster environmental, and it's all surrounding the nutrient trading, nutrient credit trading program that is coming out. You know, it's been so prevalent in the Northeast And now it's really taken off in Virginia. And now it's like literally just at the precipice of a start. You know, it's like that little tip of the iceberg that's sticking out in Maryland. And I'm really excited to see where that's going to go. Because I think there's 
huge potential there, both for the watermen, for the industry, uh, for helping clean up the bay. Um, and Maryland is the second highest number in um, oyster farmers anywhere in the nation. So the Northeast is first, and then Maryland is second, uh, running a close second there. And the number yeah, of oyster farmers it. grows every day. Um, another really cool project that I'm working on right now is called Blue Tech Maryland. Um, I seem to be like sticking myself back in Maryland a lot these days. <laughs> yeah. And um, a lot of stuff going on there. There yeah. is. And that's the whole point. So that's what Blue Tech Maryland is all about. It's trying to take all these entrepreneurs and all these farmers that are coming online and offshore wind resources and making Maryland a hub of the first for all these entrepreneurs to help get them funded, to help their businesses take off, but to really make Maryland become that hub because, you know, people are looking to Maine, people are looking to Boston and they always will, but there's so much happening right now in Maryland and Maryland's, you know, right behind DC. So you've got the politicians in tow when you need to make some policy changes, you're right there. And it should be elevated to this hub you know, when people start thinking about fisheries and aquaculture and watermen and maritime industry, why aren't they looking to Maryland more? You know, it's got more yeah. coastline than the state of Florida. And so I, I think it's been overlooked a lot. And uh, there's going to be a conference that's actually happening November 16th. It'll be the first of its kind for this, for Blue Tech. So I'm really excited about seeing where all of that is going to go and grow. Awesome. Uh, Justin, do you have anything? Well, one of the questions that we usually end on would be if any of our listeners want to learn more or contact you what's the best way that they can do that uh learn more i'll talk your ear off obviously <laughs> but they can contact me at tjatate at gmail.com all right we'll make sure we put that in the show notes i think that's it is there anything else that you want to kind of get out there while you have the platform um i sometimes you ask people what you think is coming down the pike for seafood and i really think one thing that you know, that I've been watching since about 2015 and some big changes happened in 2018 is Global Fishing Watch. And I just want to kind of give them a plug because, you know, it's a satellite based platform and I really think their time is coming and it's a tool that will be used in the entire seafood industry. You know, they've teamed up with FDA they've or FAO and UN and, you know, they, they put up the first map to really show that, you know, fishing covers 55% of our ocean. That's four times the amount of ag. That's huge information for us to know so that we can start really looking at some of these hotspots for illegal fishing and human trafficking and the different things that happen on the high seas. And I just have to give kudos to them because I think they're finally coming into their own and it can be a real game changer in the tools that they can offer the rest of the seafood industry that's already doing such great work. It looks like... Uh... It looks like we lost TJ. Her internet may have uh, may have quit on her, but we were just about finishing up anyway. So it was an amazing story. Um, and if we can get her back on, we will. But I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and, and we'll talk to you in the outro. But make sure that you do contact TJ with the information in our show notes if you want to work with her for anything. Justin, do you have anything else before we finish off? Nope, I think you covered it. All right. Well, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you next time. Folks, that was our conversation with TJ Tate. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, her internet did drop out at the end, and so I made sure to get in contact with her and ask her kind of what her sign-off message was. And uh, I just want to read that for everyone really quick before we do our closing notes. 
Uh, she said, The only last thoughts I had were about a great change happening for the entire industry, which has been coming since about 2018 with Global Fishing Watch. They have just partnered with the UN and FAO for fishery monitoring, and their satellite technology can be a game changer with respect to illegal fishing. Combining this tool with other key resources in our industry, such as GSA, MSC, and fishery monitoring, will keep the seafood industry moving toward goals of no illegal fishing worldwide. Another powerful tool in our proverbial toolbox. So I love how our industry just keeps getting better, stronger, and smarter. And so those are our final closing remarks from TJ Tate. As always, we hope you enjoyed the episode. We hope you learned something. I know I certainly did. I had a great time talking to TJ. And uh, before we sign off, as always, I want to remind everybody to make sure they subscribe to Aquademia wherever you listen to podcasts so you can get those new episodes as soon as they're available. Yes, please subscribe, give us a review, but also follow us on social at Pod. That is Twitter. Uh, you can contact us a few different ways. One by email, podcast at globalseafood.org or fill out our contact us form, which is located on the Aquademia link located at globalseafood.org. That's right. So we will talk to you next time. Bye. Oh, ciao. Bye. (laughs) Ciao.